0: So, uh, Christmas time, uh, g- we got Luke this longboard, and you can tell that Luke hasn't been riding it much, but his dad has, and so I've been riding it all over the neighborhood and like carving down our road and everything, and uh, I've been getting pretty good. Uh, now, this is my own uh, testament of myself and my skateboard skills, not compared to anyone else. So I'm like going all over town and cruising around, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm like, oh, man, well, they make other kinds of skateboards. And so I'm like, I think I could like go up a skill level and try some more things. So this is what I did. I went out and I got, I got this little cruiser skateboard. Now, you can tell like how much smaller this one is, right? And so I started with this one. And some of you probably know where this is going. Because I started to get ahead of myself in my skill set. So I'm just like going around and I'm, I'm cruising all around this, this Monday I was working on this message, and I took a little break, and there was this, uh, this pathway uh, that kind of went down by the river, and it's, it's, got, it's all paved, and it's smooth, and so I'm like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my headphones on. I'm just going to cruise around, do all that. Well, there's this little hill uh, in this pathway, and, and I'm thinking, okay, on my longboard, I've got this. Like, I know I can do it, but I've never done a hill like that on my cruiser, Now, some of you are already making the face and like you're gringing because you know know it's going to happen. So I end up going down and I start getting what skateboarders call the wobbles, where your wheels are going so fast that it starts to go out of control a little bit. And so I have two options at this point. I can either uh, let the skateboard determine how I fall because I'm going to fall. Or I can try sprinting off of it and trying to catch up with the speed that I was at. And all of you are like, no, where this is going, right? So I chose a second option. And I'm I'm like full on sprinting off that. Well, it takes me like two steps, and I just stumble. And I just go, like, you know, I'm just like down in the elbow first, hip, ankle, and I just skid along the pavement. Luckily, it was cold that day, so I had a lot of layers on, Okay. But I I do what everyone does when they they have an accident like this. You're starting to do the check. Like, is everything still there? Is anything broken? You know, I'm going over. And then I start doing the hobble dance where you're, like, hobbling around, getting everything just moving, just saying a lot of words that I probably shouldn't repeat. And And I was doing that, and I was just, like, trying to get my bearings again. But here's... Here's what, here's what happened. I start walking back. Luckily, everyone's asked me, did anyone see you? And I'm like, luckily, no. The only thing that was hurt was my body. It wasn't just my pride, but it would have been a lot more, it would have been worse if someone had caught on video and it went viral, okay? So, but the thing is, is I, I, got, back to the, I got back to the house, and, and Melissa's like, what happened? And I like peel off my layers, and there's like this road rash like all over my body, and Melissa's like, oh you poor thing, you know, she's like, bless your heart, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I started thinking about this passage that we just read and talked about stumbling. What caused me to stumble, I didn't hit a rock, I didn't hit anything like that. It was my pride, thinking my skill set was far enough advanced before, than where it was, right? And so what ended up causing me to stumble and fall was actually not anything outside of me, but it was actually inside of me. And I started thinking about the people that we put our most trust in is who? Ourselves. Think about The person you trust the most in this world is yourself. But the the person who has failed you the most in this world is who? Yourself. I mean, how many of you guys are still on your uh, New Year's Eve, you know, your New Year's resolution diets and all those things? Like, how many cakes and cookies and cupcakes have you consumed since January first? Right? We have all of the right intentions to do good things, right? But we are the ones who end up harming others that we love the most. We are the ones that end up uh, destroying and breaking our own trust. So the the reality of this of this analogy is that. Self-deception is a real thing. We can so deceive ourselves to think that we are okay and it's not that bad and so justify things that happen in our life. But the thing that causes us to stumble the most is usually inside of us, not external circumstances. So when Jesus has these harsh words for us, I believe this morning that he is trying to jolt us awake to what actually the realities of sin is. And are, and so this morning I want us to be thinking about this. I mean, Jesus is introducing this upside down kingdom, and he said some of these phrases over the last uh, couple weeks as we've been studying in Mark. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be a servant of all. To find life, what do we need to do to find life? We need to deny ourselves and to die. And he has other phrases like this, and he is reversing how we think about life. What is the threat of all this? The sin of pride keeps us thinking that we are the sinner of all. And what Jesus is talking about, to enter true life cannot happen naturally, but only supernaturally. It is not natural for us to think of others before ourselves. No one naturally denies himself. No one naturally serves others. So the problem that this text teaches us, the problem, Jesus says, is our sin. And the essence of sin is pride. And Jesus is going to redefine sin for us. In fact, if we don't cut off our sin, we are trying to find life apart from him, and we are in very serious danger. So the problem is our sin. The solution that Jesus gives us is to cut it off, to enter life. So as we are working through this passage, I want you to be aware of a couple things. What causes the disciples to stumble? And then be thinking about yourself. What causes you to stumble? So last week, if you want to open your Bibles to uh, chapter 9, verse 30, if you're not already there, uh, begin there. And last week, Rob walked us through this passage where the disciples were unable to cast out this demon, right? And they were unable to do it in their own strength. Jesus is saying, you cannot do it in yourself. And Rob used this phrase, "You, your resources are not enough for you to do the task that God is calling you to. Now, I would re- rephrase this for this week. You cannot live the life God is calling you to without God. Now, that sounds like such a simple phrase. Let me rephrase that. You cannot live the life that God is calling you to without God. The thing you need the most is the thing, in, in fact, that you will resist the most. It sounds simple, but we resist God in so many different ways. Now, there's a lot to cover. This is a difficult passage to cover, but I am hoping to paint this passage. When you look at it through the lens of the gospel, you actually see that this passage brings life, That is actually vibrant, that it actually starts to make sense. Let's pick up in, in verse 30. We're going to move along pretty quickly through this. There's a lot to cover. Verse 30, we see that Jesus goes, goes on through Galilee and he's, he's going through there. He's making a shift from a public ministry to one where he is going to be teaching his disciples. From now on, he's going to be focusing on teaching his disciples and instilling what he wants them to learn. Verse 31, he begins to tell them what he told them earlier in chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 9, verse 12. He begins to tell them that he's going to be handed over, he's going to be killed, And then three days later, he is going to rise again. So they're struggling with this idea of Messiah. So let's just unpack this just a little bit. Their idea of Messiah was what? One who would come and set up earthly kingdom and set up reign and rule here and overthrow the oppressors who was Rome at the time, right? That was what they were thinking Messiah was going to look like. But Jesus is painting a picture of what Isaiah paints, and which is the suffering servant king that comes in and establishes reign. So they are, they're thinking they know what they expect God to do and what God to be like and what Messiah is going to be like. So every time that Jesus is introducing this, this is the third time that he is telling them that he is going to be handed over, that he's going to be killed, and that he's going to rise again. They're struggling with this. They are fighting this of what Jesus is saying. Because they want their kingdom to be established here and now. They want Rome gone. They want Rome to be uh, dismissed. So Jesus is trying to take their eyes off of the horizontal, what is happening, their man-centric idea of Messiah. And he is trying to bring their eyes vertical to what God is doing. So they're thinking about they're thinking their worst oppressor is Rome, and Jesus is saying, No, you're actually your worst enemy, your worst oppressor is actually sin, and the sin is within you. So Jesus is reframing several things for him in this. One thing that stood out to me if we are like the disciples, then this is this is one thing that I just want us to be aware of. If God never disagrees with you, then chances are you're making God into your image rather than the one of the scriptures. So I've had many conversations with people around this, and and if God doesn't disagree with us, he disagrees with me all the time. When I start reading the Gospels, I see that my worldview oftentimes doesn't line up with what Jesus is teaching. Who needs to shift? We need to realign to what Christ is calling us to in, in this So Jesus is explaining what we would call the good news of the gospel, right? He's explaining the death, burial, and resurrection. We would call that the gospel. What would the the disciples call call that? Bad news, (laughs) right? They're they're thinking, this is not not good news that you're talking about. You're talking about you're going to be handed over and you're going to die. And what does Peter do in chapter 8? He rebukes Jesus, right? I mean, he, he tells them, no, 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 that's not going to happen. You're, you're getting it all wrong. Like, so they're interpreting it as bad news. And I believe that our world, when we, they, when we hear the gospel, without the work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to this, it's offensive. Because the gospel is telling us that it's offensive to our pride because it's offensive to our self-efforts. You cannot save yourself. And actually, the gospel of Christ begins with bad news. It tells us, that we need rescue, that we are guilty of sin, and that we can't fix it on our own. So we need God to open our eyes to see this as good news. So the disciples keep resisting us. Let's pick this up in verse 34. They're struggling with the idea of a suffering servant and that he will die. And then they're arguing about what? Who's greatest? So Jesus, uh, this is like a, a perfect parent analogy you know, like when you know the truth and your kids, like, mom and dad would be like, hey, what were you talking about? And they already know what you were talking about, you know, and they're caught. And so they, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Well, what happened uh, just, just a, our, a couple weeks ago, what happened in, in our text? What, Jesus takes uh, three of them up onto the mountain for the transfiguration, Right. And now I can only imagine that they're arguing about these three of them. Who among these three of them is the greatest? They're trying to establish the pecking order of the 12. Who is the greatest? Who's the least? And so Jesus intervenes. But what is getting in their way of actually understanding what Jesus is talking about is their pride. What they think is good for them to establish who is the greatest, who is, who's the one that they should be looking to as a leader, what they think is good, Jesus is saying, no, actually your pride in this is keeping you from understanding and it's causing you to stumble. Verse 35, he tells them that if they want to be great, they need to be what? A servant of all. So this is the, this is the first kind of a uh, poignant thing that Jesus is going to say to them: of, of, you know, you want to be great, then then be like this, be like a servant, and not just a servant, one who serves all. So pride again continues to think that we are the center of the universe, the most important thing, and then he punctuates his point in verse thirty-seven. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but one who sent me. Okay, now look over in in chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. He does the same thing in just in just the next chapter. What he does is he the disciples are dismissing the children, and what is Jesus doing? He is bringing the children to him. He's putting them on his lap. And he is saying to them, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And he took the children and he blessed the children. Now, our our mindset in, in our day and age, like, what is Instagram filled with? It's filled with people of their kids, right? So people can goo goo over our kids, right? Like we're, we're, we're pretty child-centric in our culture. That wasn't the case back then. Back then, uh, to be a child was to be less value. You, uh, you, sometimes you're a nuisance, but it was, it was more of, uh, on the outskirts. Uh, child, they weren't child-centric in their society. So when we, when we look at this, what is Jesus saying to them? Who is he saying they need to be like in order to in, enter the kingdom? Children. So first you're telling me, Jesus, that we need to be servants. And now you're taking it a step further. And now we need to be children. So, so if, we, if this is offensive to them, what Jesus is saying is offensive to them. Like they would be offended by what he is saying. Because what is a child? Think about what is it? What is a child? A child, they are dependent on others for life. A child does not come out of the womb and know uh, how he can't feed himself, can't, uh, can't take care of themselves. Who ha- they have to be taken care of. The child is one of the most humble forms of, of imagery that we could have. So Jesus is calling them to be humble servants, but then takes it a step farther and say, you need to be like a child. Let's look at verse 37. When you you have verse 37, you're you're looking at, he's going to use this word four different times. He's going to use the word receive. So he says, receive me. Do we have it, Greg? look in your look in your Bibles, verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not, whoever does not receive me does not receive me but the one who sent me. Now, this is just a Bible study method. When we look at this, what is it, the word that gets repeated four different times in one sentence is receive. Another translation would look at this and say, welcome, so whoever welcomes one child like this welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. So we need to, like, our radar should be going off. When, you, when you're studying the scriptures by yourself and you see a word or a phrase get repeated, pay attention to it. He's, he's saying this is a big deal. He's trying to re, uh, retell them what it looks like to follow him and actually enter life. You need to receive, like who? A child. One thing that I tell people all the time is, if you have young children, let your children teach you the gospel. What I mean by that is, if you ever walked in uh, when, you're, when your child is sleeping, when a baby is sleeping, and you just stand, and what are you doing? You're just watching them breathe. And all they're doing is they're just in the crib, and they're just breathing. And what are you thinking? You oh, You delight in just watching them breathe. Now, think of this of the gospel. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ throughout the New Testament, what are, those, what are we called when we, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? We are adopted sons and daughters. We are called children of God. So when I tell people, let let your children teach you the gospel, I say, put your child to bed and rock them to sleep and let them fall asleep on your chest and to begin to think that that is how God the Father sees you because of what Christ has done. And let that play over and over and over until you actually grasp it. Because what Jesus is saying, those who are humble in their faith, those who are childlike, who are dependent on me for life, will receive life. And they will not just receive life, they will receive the Father who sent me. So the gospel is we get God, we get the Father, Let's pick up in verse 40, 38 through 41. There is uh, this, this section here where John is seeing others minister uh, and, and others cast out demons, and, and he's trying to do what? He's trying to stop them. Now, John is trying to stop them and say, he's trying to stop them and say, hey, you're not with us. Uh, you need to stop doing this. The only people who, who can do that is, is us. So John, again, like I think this points to pride. What is John thinking that he knows who is, who, is, who should be in, who should be out, who should be ministering, who shouldn't be ministering? He is taking on the role of what Jesus that 's pretty arrogant, don't you think? But think about how we do this as well it's so easy for for me as a as a pastor in this area because there's so many different churches, there's so many different options. Let's just get, I'm just going to get honest with you. It's, it's hard for me sometimes to celebrate the good that God is doing somewhere else. That's pride. That's pride. And I, I'd be lying to you. if I said if it was, it, it was easy for when people would leave our church and go someplace else, that's not easy. That actually is hard for us as pastors here. But the thing that I was convicted about this week is, man, I want to celebrate what God is doing, not just here, not just in Franklin, but around the world. And we need to be people that celebrate the movements of God. That's just something that, that just struck me um, this week. So there's the beginning. This is the beginning half of the passage. And now the more difficult part, the thing that, the thing that I believe ties this front part to the back part is actually pride, this thread of pride that goes forth. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Let's pick up in 42 through 50. We're going to kind of give this block of this chunk here. Jesus is going to redefine our view of sin. He's going to expand it. That sin isn't to be just taken lightly. This language that Jesus uses is strong and it's to evoke emotion. So verse 42, Jesus is talking about if you harm others' belief and cause those who are like children in their faith, dependent and humble, if you cause someone like this to stumble in sin, to lose that type of faith, it would be better for you to have a heavy millstone around your neck and be cast in the sea. That's a tough word from Jesus, right? So let's look at what is a millstone. So a millstone was the stone that they would use to grind up grain. Now, this is a a large millstone. This would be one that would be used uh, uh, with an animal pulling it and and turning it. Now, they have smaller ones, but even their smallest of millstones, if you put that around someone's neck, they're not swimming. What are they doing? They're sinking, okay? Where are they going to be in not too long? The bottom, Jesus is very clear on, on what this is. He's saying this is serious. So here's the first part. Sin and pride don't just hurt you and cause you to stumble. It harms others, and it can harm others. So this is what Jesus is talking about. This is a hard uh, saying of Jesus. This, these next phrases are even, even harder, but there's this pattern that's going to develop. So the problem with sin is that you can't treat the problem by just changing the behavior alone. So the pattern that we're going to see is that whatever causes you to stumble, and this is going to be repeated three times. So again, if you're, if you're studying the scriptures and you see a pattern, pay attention to it. So here's the pattern. Whatever causes you to stumble, or some interpretations they say sin, cut it off to inner life rather than it be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the, and the fire is not quenched. It says this three times. It says, it says that pattern three times, cut it off, inner life, hell, where the worm is not destroyed and the fire is not quenched. It says it three different times. So the problem with sin is that you can't treat the problem by just changing your behavior. See, the value of eternal life is worth any sacrifice that you can make, What are you willing to hold on to in exchange for your soul? Do you remember that question when Jesus asked that earlier in our text? Not not this week, but a couple weeks ago. He said, what are you willing to hold on to in exchange for your soul? What needs to be removed? What needs to be cut off? He's He's using hyperbole here. He is exaggerated image to grasp the seriousness of what he is talking about. Cut it off, Jesus says. His words are not to be taken literally, but figuratively. No amount of self-mutilation can deal with sin, which is an issue of our heart. Jesus is showing the seriousness of sin and the need to do whatever is necessary to deal with it. So what do you consider so close to your identity that the thought of cutting it off seems like you would be giving up your life? That's kind of what he's, he's, he's getting at. In C.S. Lewis's writings on hell and sin, he describes all sorts of people that given the choice to be with God and give up what they hold onto so dearly, they would actually choose what they want to hold onto in life inside themselves than to surrender to the rule and reign of God. And people, uh, people have argued back with, with him on this and he has, he has dialogue around this. And he said, no, listen, I believe that even if someone was to see God himself, they would still rather hold on to their sin and selfishness and their way of life than to come under the rule and reign and authority of Christ. And I was struggling with this, and and then I was was talking this out with a a friend, and I realized, okay, when people were interacting with Jesus, who were they interacting with? God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God, God. With us, so the Pharisees, the Romans, the other people of that day, when they're interacting with Jesus, they're interacting with God. And there's many times where they, uh, people, are turned away because they don't want to come under His rule and reign and His authority and His His way of what He's doing. They would rather hold on to what they would say with li- His life. So C.S. Lewis says there are two two types of people. One is someone who is holding on to their system of life and how they have, uh, their value, their worth, their purpose is found in what they have created. This could be a religious person or an irreligious person. And God is going to say to them, thy will be done, and hand them over to where they are trying to find life. The other person is going to admit that they cannot produce life in themselves and actually they are a created being and that there is a creator and they are going to come under his right rule and reign and they are going to say to God, God, thy will be done. So the thing that I believe that is happening here is that we can get so darkened in our understanding of what life is that we would actually turn to the creator and say, life is not found in you. So verse 48, when he's talking about hell, it's this word Gehenna. And Gehenna, literally translated, is the valley, valley of Hinnom, a real place in the southwest side of Jerusalem. And so this is the, the valley where in Israel's darkest parts of their story, they actually took babies and they uh, sacrificed babies. And then when they, restored, when they restored that, they actually took and made it a trash dump. And so in Jesus's day, it is actually this place where they would burn their trash. So he is using this literal place to bring imagery and to paint a picture of Gehenna, of hell. It's mentioned in Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, where the worm is not uh, destroyed and the fire is not quenched. So it's this fermenting furnace with maggots and it is not a place to live, but we get clarity on a couple things what Jesus is talking about. This is a real place and it will be for eternity. The scriptures incompletely describe Gehenna though because for us to understand the depth of the depravity and evil that would happen without God's con- constraining common grace in society and where people would be handed over to their passions and their desires and their overabundance, we cannot even describe what that would look like. I mean, we hear news stories of some of the evil that happens in our world, and it makes us cringe. But can you imagine if there was no restraining grace? We can't even imagine it. And that's what Jesus is trying to paint this picture. So one thing that was really helpful to me was trying to understand, okay, what does it mean to be human? In its basic form, what does it mean to be human? We'll go back to Genesis. God created man in his image. So to be human is to be one who is created in God's image. So when someone says, I don't recognize you as creator and authority over my life, they are saying something, I want to be something other than human. Human. I want to be my own rule and my own reign, and I want nothing to do with you. And in fact, to be created in your image, I would actually prefer not to even be associated with that. So you start to get the picture of what would happen to someone who makes that decision. God would hand them over to that decision. And that was what Gehenna would start to look like. When Jesus is expanding our view of sin and the seriousness and the scope of sin, I believe Reggie McNeil helps phrase this of what he is talking about. Sin is the propensity for humans to live as though they are God. Sin is the decision to live away from God rather than toward him. Sin is the failure to surrender moment by moment to the rule and reign of God. We sin when we place ourselves in charge of our lives. We are like the disciples. We are turning to the created thing to find life, to set up this world as our permanent home, to try to be greatest here, to try to um, persuade God to do what our plans are. They are expressing greed. The problem with sin is this it is never enough, it never satiates. So when Jesus is using this word of unquenchable fire and where something isn't destroyed, he is talking about what sin is is expressing. No one willfully says we are so self-deceived that we willfully wouldn't say that this is where we think life is, is actually causing us harm. But Jesus is trying to bring our attention to where we think life is, is actually bringing us harm. See, the problem with sin is not just that it isn't enough, but that it promises life, and actually brings what? Death. You see, I've never met anyone with greed of money who has ever been able to tell me what the number is for them to be satisfied. I've never met someone with the problem of pornography who has ever said, I have actually seen images and now I'm completely satisfied. I have never met anyone with the problem of control who has who've ever said, I have actually figured out all the different ways that life could go wrong and all the different scenarios and I've safeguarded myself among it and now I have security. I've never met anyone who has struggled with a people's approval and has actually been able to say, I have the number one person's approval that I wanted, and now I have it, and I know it's always going to be there, and I am secure in that. Why? Why? Sin will not be satisfied. Here is the truth about greed, addiction, and fantasy. It isn't about money. It isn't about sex. It isn't about food. It isn't about alcohol. We are looking to the created things of this world to give us deep affirmation, love, and security that only God can give. So where are you saying this is the most important thing to have for me to have affirmation, purpose, security to find life in? Tim Keller describes this like being on a raft in the ocean, dying of thirst, but yet surrounded by water. We are dying because we have no water and we're unsatisf- we're dissatisfied. Sin will never satiate what it promises to deliver. When Jesus is exposing the disciples and what is actually necessary to inner life, he is actually exposing that as an act of grace. So in your life, when you are actually exposed by God and convicted by God of where you are falling short, of where you are actually turning to the created things, that is actually an act of God's grace towards you. Why? Because he is showing you where you are relying on something that promises life, but will only deliver death. He is actually saying, This thing that you are turning to is not where life is. And that is an act of grace. The natural bent of our hearts is to build our lives around something created rather than the Creator. And we search for things to fill our worth and identity. So I want to unpack what is pride, spiritual pride is to say that we are sufficient to run our lives, that we don't need God. Pride is to say that we built this for ourselves and we give ourselves the credit. Pride is to say, I don't need others. Pride is to try and control your life as though you know best. Pride is to say to God, you don't know what you're doing. I want to do it this way, and I actually think it's better this way. Pride is constantly playing the victim and making situations about you. Pride keeps our focus on comparing and contrasting ourselves against others. Pride keeps us from venturing out with our faith and the fear of rejection. Pride tells us we are good and that we, and compared to those sinners out there in the world, we are looking even better. Pride says that God doesn't care because if he did, we wouldn't be facing this situation. Church, I believe there's two different ways of rejecting the gospel, the good news of Jesus with our pride. One says, I don't need God. I'm not that broken. I'm basically good. And look at all the good things that I'm doing. The other way is to say, look at my story. I'm too far gone. I'm too broken. God can't rescue this. So the problem that Jesus brings up and puts to the forefront is our sin. What causes us to stumble? Our sin. Our pride. The solution that he brings is to do what? Cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off to inner life. If your eye gouge it out. If your foot, cut it off. But see, if we just focus on the behaviors, I mean, there are things that you need to stop doing, right? There are things that cause you to stumble that you can address and that you can actually stop doing. Like when I was in high school, I used to listen to music that I probably shouldn't do, you know, listen to because of the lyrics, but I loved the beat and I would justify it because, well, the beat's really good. Well, I hear my friends do this all the time with TV shows. Well, I know there's things in there that actually don't lead me down a good path, but the writing's so good. But here's the problem with that. The thing that doesn't need to be cut off isn't just our behaviors. The thing that we actually need is a new heart because where does Jesus say leads us astray? Now, evil doesn't come by the things that we put in, but the things that come out. So the thing that we actually need is to cut out where? Our hearts, we need new hearts because we're looking to this life to fulfill these things that only Jesus can fill. We actually need to change our motivations and our desires. And where do our motivations and desires come? They come from the core of us, from our heart. But the problem is, none of us are going to cut out our heart. We're not going to cut off our hand. So the thing that I think this leads us to is where do we find Freedom. I believe that we find freedom when we face this and repent. We need to cut off what we think is most important and find our life hidden in Christ. And so I want us to just pause right now and I want us to come together and actually read this corporate confession together. Because if if you're like me when you read this text you realize I am guilty like the disciples. I am found guilty. Let's read this together. Father, you know us intimately. We are guilty of pride, unbelief, and selfishness. We have justified our sins. We have sought life outside of you. We have tried to live life apart from you. We confess our need for you and for your mercy. May we find freedom from our wounds, from givenness, from the harm we have caused others. May we see the seriousness of our sin. Sustain us by your grace and empower us by your Holy Spirit within us. Amen. So where does this leave us? Well, Matt Chandler has this article that's so well written. I just want to read three paragraphs of it. He says, I often hear unbelievers make the statement that Christianity is a crutch. It's a statement intended to insult believers, to imply that only a weak person would need religion. And in our culture, it's a statement that hits its mark more often than not because our, dis- our culture despises weakness. We don't want to be seen as weak. We want to be perceived as strong. So when I hear someone say that Christianity is a crutch, I actually agree with them. I'm a guy whose legs are broken and I need a crutch. When I hear someone say Christianity is for the feeble mind, I actually agree with them because I understand that I have a feeble mind and I need the gospel to give me a right mind and a right way of thinking about the world. When I hear someone say Christianity is something that weak people need, I actually agree with them because weak people need it and I am weak and so are you. You just don't know that you are weak and in need of a crutch. When we are at our weakest, God rescued us at the appointed time. And this, my friends, is the gospel. This is the good news invading dark places. It allows us to stop looking inside of ourselves to solve our problems because we are the problem. It allows us to acknowledge our weakness head on. We stop saying, I'm going to get better for you, Lord. I'm just going to try harder because we realize we can't on our best day. We fall woefully short of God's expectations, yet God has intervened on our behalf by sending Christ to die at just the right time. Romans 5.8. For when we were what? Enemies. Christ died for us. Can't think of a better way this morning than for us to turn our minds and our hearts' affections towards what Christ has done for us on our behalf. Have the ushers come forth and start um, handing out the elements. So I'm going to summarize us and lead us to the table this morning. What is the problem that Jesus is presenting? It is our sin of pride that causes us to stumble in sin. And the solution that he offers is for us to cut it off. Sin is such a big deal that you have to be willing to cut off what you think is actually life. While they were trying to be their greatest, trying to tell who's in and who's out, Jesus is saying it causes them to stumble. You see, the solution to our sin problem is not cutting off my hand, it is my heart. I don't solve my sin issue by removing my hand, foot, or eye. I need a heart change. And God alone is the one who can change your heart. So where do you need to confess that you are looking to life in places other than God? And maybe this morning you are realizing I am one of those two people. I'm rejecting the gospel because I'm saying I'm too far gone. Eric, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. You don't know uh, how I've harmed others, how I've harmed myself. Eric, you don't know that story. And in fact, if anyone sitting around me knew my story, what I've done with my thought life, any of those things, they wouldn't even sit around me. Well, I believe that is pride because you are saying that God cannot change your circumstance and cannot change your heart and that is untrue. You need to surrender to his work. And the other way that we can push away the gospel is by saying, but Eric, but Eric, okay, I get, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, but here's the reality. I, I actually don't think this way about God, or I actually think I, I kind of know uh, this a little bit more. Pride keeps us from resisting coming under his rule and reign. Or pride keeps us from admitting that we are broken because I'm basically, I'm, I'm good. I've got this going. I'm doing the religious thing. I'm, I'm here. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing all these things. And I am not like that person over there. They're the ones in need of grace. So this morning, whether you're in one of these two places, I want, I want you to think this morning, I want you to just take a minute to just pray and reflect on where am I turning and trying to find life apart from God. God, would you change my motivation? Would you change my heart? I'll give you a minute just to reflect. If you want to close your eyes and just reflect and pray. So here's where the good news of Jesus actually makes a hard passage become life for us as those as believers who put our faith and trust in him. Because Jesus knew the gravity of sin, the destructiveness of sin, of when we f- try to find life in our own, he knew that we could not cut that off in our own strength. He's actually painting a picture of the impossible. But praise God that he was the one who cut himself for us. He didn't just cut his hand or his foot or his eye. What did he do? He cut his whole body off from the Father to take on our sin and place it on himself because of what Jesus has done, we actually have access to God. If we receive and welcome what Christ has done for us, we actually quit striving on our own and receive life like a child. When you receive the work of Christ, you're empowered to then change your behavior because your motivations are changed, because your heart is renewed. We did not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, that, my friends, is not the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, and there is nothing worth more than Christ, no money, no relationship, no addiction. Christianity is a crutch, but that is good news to us because we are all crippled. To be a Christian is to admit that we are in need and he cannot respond to the proud or the hard-hearted because they don't want them. He will not force himself in. So taking the bread, we realize that Jesus cut himself off for us on our behalf so that we would have access to the Father in relationship with God. He broke his body for us. Take and eat. It is Christ in his righteousness not a righteousness we try to offer to God in our own, but because of him, we are the righteousness of Christ. And when the father sees us, he sees his righteousness and we are made one with him. Take and receive. Would you stand with me? We're going to respond in this way. Who do we place our faith and trust in? In Christ alone. I want you to finish that phrase for us. Who do we put our faith and trust in? In Christ alone. Let's sing and respond.